You can see images of things talked about by checking out the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast and you can donate to us if you like what we do via our Buy Me a Coffee account. Check the episode notes for a link to that. A scholarly framework for thinking critically about how past racism is expressed and possibly supported by the very systems and institutions that were created way back when to perpetuate white dominance has become a flashpoint for freaked out people looking for scapegoats and for those who manipulate those people for fame, influence, and power. We're talking about critical race theory, something you probably never even heard of before last year, despite the fact that it's nearly 40 years old. But what the heck is it really? Why do people in a country that claims to be the bastion and model of freedom of speech and thought want to shut down this particular approach to thinking and discourse? How can a loose collection of ideas be dangerous to a country of 328 million people? That's what we're going to look at in this episode. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Critical Critical race race theory, theory, re-examining, quote, quote, normal. What is critical critical race race theory? theory? Critical race theory is an academic movement and also a bunch of legal scholarship that examines where law and race intersect, or perhaps collide, in mainstream America. This encompasses legal issues, but also social and cultural parts of American society as well. It's a way to look at race and racism in the United States that goes beyond the individual level. Despite all the recent hoopla over it, CRT started in the 1970s with a bunch of writing by legal scholars and developed into something resembling a thinking person's movement in the 1980s, with the first real meetings occurring in 1989, as certain thinkers wondered to themselves why, 25 years after the signing of the Civil Rights Act, things really hadn't gotten that much better. It's not a formal academic discipline per se, and people who examine things from CRT perspectives, as it's sometimes acronymed to, do not always agree with each other. Some people think that capitalism itself may be inherently racist since it requires an underclass, and back in the early days of American capitalism for sure, everyone who was on top of the power structure already thought that blacks were inherently lesser than they were, and so were a sort of ready-made underclass. Others don't go that far, and there is a wide range of thought in the CRT or critical race theory realm. Having said that, there are some foundational notions. 
One, that racial inequality comes from complicated interactions and social dynamics of people in aggregate rather than the dedicated work of a few individuals who hold certain beliefs about race. Racism is therefore, one can say, systemic. It is baked into the systems that we interact with every day. Two, there is a trend, not totally widespread, but perhaps a little more widespread than you might think, to benefit and maintain white power at the expense of other communities who have been marginalized in the past. Three, legal solutions that attempt to correct past injustices often do not have the desired effect since the very system that is tasked with enforcing them is informed by the subtle and sometimes even subconscious racial assumptions, prejudices, and cliches that have persisted for generations. And four, the way race is handled in American society often intersects with similar issues when it comes to gender and class and sexuality. In short, white heteronormative cis males have sort of called the shots and derived the most benefit from the societal and legal structures that they created more than other groups, usually at the expense of those other groups, and this has been going on for a long time. And sometimes what is considered right or normal is based mainly on the experience of these white heteronormative cis males. If this is true, which I think is pretty self-apparent, it is true, and we wish to create a more balanced and fairer society, then this must be addressed and dealt with to make structural changes at all levels of mass human interaction, from law enforcement and the legal system to employment and workplace practices, the academic world, and other sectors of society. Hair, hair today, today, gone, gone tomorrow. tomorrow. As an example, let's talk about hair. White men do not have hair like African Americans do. They just don't. So for decades, when a black person finds themselves in a corporate environment, there has been pressure for them to essentially white up their hairstyles. No cornrows, no frizzy afros, none of that stuff. Why? Because it's, quote, not normal to white men. Their hair won't do that stuff unless they work really, really hard at it. So employees should conform to business norms. Be like us. But certain hairstyles are very easy for black people and also carry a certain amount of cultural pride. So to forbid black people from wearing their hair however they want to can also sometimes be seen as an attempt, on purpose or inadvertently, to suppress black people's cultural identities. Now, the white guys making and enforcing these policies would almost certainly deny that they have intent to suppress anything like that. After all, a bright green mohawk would also be forbidden in a bank's head offices, regardless of the race of the person who wanted to come to work with that hair. Consider tattoos. Back in, say, the 80s, middle and upper class white men didn't really have tattoos. The cliche was that body markings like that were for old sailors, criminals, and biker gangs. Then the 90s came along and pretty soon more and more people were getting tattooed. Tattoos were once so uncommon, a popular circus sideshow attraction was the tattooed lady. Today, the tattooed lady could be a cashier at Walmart or a school teacher. At least that's what mainstream American culture thought. However, it's interesting to note that even as far back as the 1930s, it's estimated 10% of Americans in that decade had some kind of tattoo. Today, that number is somewhere between 20 and 35%, depending on who you talk to, ranging from somewhere between 66 million people and 116 million people just in the United States. And 70% of all people who have one tattoo also have a second one. With so many tattoos floating around out there on the skins of prospective employees, it would be foolish for companies not to hire people who had tattoos. 
they become normalized because tattoos had crept into the world of the white men who nominally still hold most of the power and make the rules. So, you got a tattoo today, it's not really a big deal. Tattoos are a choice, and yes, so is hairstyle. But the physical properties of African-American hair often differ from those of other races, so there's a long history of hairstyles unique to that group of people. Big deal, right? Well, it is sometimes a big deal. In 1970, a worker at the insurance company Blue Cross was passed over for promotion specifically because she wore her hair in an afro. She sued, and in 1976, the ruling came down that Afros are also included in the protections of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Yet the problem continued, especially since Afros are not the only natural hairstyle for African Americans. But later, another federal court said, no, 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 because hairstyles can be changed, they are not protected. This was in 2016. There was plenty of pressure in the culture for black people, especially women, to straighten their hair to be like Eurocentric norms. And many black people began to suspect that one of the reasons they didn't get a particular job or a promotion was because of their hair, though the people blocking them from advancement were smart enough not to say it directly. They used words like unprofessional and inappropriate, which are vague enough until you think about them. Sometimes they go a little further and use terms like urban, which I think everybody knows is often white people code for black. Why, for example, would box braids be somehow unprofessional or inappropriate? It really comes across as a form of discrimination to someone on the receiving end of this kind of language. The message seems to be, the more you adapt yourself to be like us, the more likely we will tolerate your presence. In August 2018, an 11-year-old girl named Faith Fennedy was starting her sixth grade year at a school in New Orleans when a teacher asked her if her hair was real. A counselor was brought in and made her bend over so he could see if she had extensions. She was then given a reprimand letter for her parents to sign that said Faith's hair, quote, did not align with school policy, even though she had been wearing braids for the previous two years. Nothing more was said, just that she needed to change it. Change her hair to what? Well, as you can imagine, the white school administrators who have no experience with black hairstyles couldn't really say. Why the sudden change after two years of no problems? Is sixth grade somehow different than fourth and fifth grade? Again, no answers to these questions. So her parents, who aren't made out of money, dropped some serious coin to get her hair more under control in box braids, only to be told that this hairstyle too was unacceptable. The school cited a recent rule prohibiting hair extensions, which another black student, Tyrell Davis, had also fallen afoul of. Rather than give the Fennedy family more guidance on how they could meet these hair requirements, the school just told them the day before school picture day that their daughter Faith was no longer welcome as a student at that school because of her hair. People videoed Faith's last day, the 11-year-old girl crying as she packed up her things, her parents with her insisting that her hair was not a problem, and school administrators and teachers standing by saying things like, it's not just her hair, and then berating the parents for being, quote, smart to them, meaning smart-assed, as in, how dare you talk to me like that, you black people. The video went viral, and the Fennedy and Davis families filed a discrimination suit against the Christ the King Catholic Parish School. School pointed out that their student handbook says, quote, 
Styles which draw undue attention to the student and cause distractions in class are not allowed, and the principal, Don Castillo, said that such hairstyles fall under those prohibitions because girls with them often flip or twirl their braids, especially when lengthened by extensions. Which, to my mind, sounds like it's a behavior issue and not a hairstyle issue. It was noted by the family's lawyers that these policies on hair would affect black children, but not white children, so therefore they were inherently discriminatory. Well, this became quite a hoopla on social media, and soon many, many, many similar stories started coming out, ranging from grade school through university and even into the workplace. Story after story of black people talking about how somehow their hair had gotten them in trouble with the powers that be. Less than a week earlier, six-year-old C.J. Stanley in Florida was sent home from Books Christian Academy because he had dreadlocks. C.J. is, of course, black. Back in 2013, a charter school in Ohio, the Horizon Science Academy, outright banned specific black hairstyles, such as, in their words, quote, Afro puffs, which is what a ponytail looks like if you have extremely curly hair, and quote, small twisted braids. Hairstyles that no white person could possibly achieve. In 2017, twin sisters Maya and Deanna Cook were sent to detention for wearing braids to their school in Massachusetts. New Jersey high school wrestler Andrew Johnson was forced by a referee to cut his hair right there on the court or be expelled from a wrestling match that he was participating in in December 2018. Probably thousands of these stories started coming out. All this seemed to be sort of out of sync with the times. In 2017, the U.S. military, rather famously conservative in the tonsorial realm, updated their grooming standards to now allow dreadlocks and braids, and then later further allowed lipstick, earrings, ponytails, beards, turbans, and much more. In 2019, California became the first state to pass a law specifically banning discrimination based on hairstyle or hair texture called the Crown Act, short for Create a Respectful and Open Workplace for Natural Hair. New York followed suit that same year by amending the New York Human Rights Act. As of this recording, nine other states have done something similar, making 11, and then in August this year, the governor of Illinois signed a bill banning hair discrimination in his state. This was in direct response to the plight of four-year-old Gus Hawkins, who likes to be known as Jet, with two T's, who excitedly went into his class to show the other kids at Chicago's Providence St. Mel School his cool new braids. This happened in March this year. But his mother got a message from the school the next day saying that his hair was a no-go. So, she put the braids into a ponytail and sent him back to school, only to receive another message that that hairstyle was also not permitted. The school, which has almost all of its students from Chicago's inner city, said afros were okay and shorter hairstyles are okay, but braids, locks, twists, bantu knots, and other longer natural hairstyles were banned. Well, Jet's mother went on the warpath, getting interviewed on TV and in newspapers, and pretty soon, Illinois Senator Mike Simmons, who is openly gay, black, and has some crazy-ass fun hair, wrote the Jet Hawkins Act which the governor just signed into law. It will go into effect on January 1st, 2022. So that will be 12 states that block hair discrimination. Representative Ilan Omar has introduced the Crown Act into the U.S. Congress, hoping to make it a federal law. And it is being discussed, kind of. Why, you may ask, do lawmakers have to get involved in this topic? 
Clearly, it's because there have been some systemic problems that overlook the actual physical realities of normal black hair, almost certainly because the people who created the system were all white men with white guy hair, and because it still goes on. But his hair, you might say, exasperated. I mean, how is hair a big deal? First off, because the power structure seems to have decided that it is, in fact, a big deal at least when it comes to natural black hairstyles. Note the list of verboten white hairstyles in, in school districts is much, much shorter. In 2019, a school in DeKalb County in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, decided that they would display a poster with pictures of students who sport inappropriate hairstyles, so everything would be clear and above board. Unfortunately, all those pictures were of black children. And you can just imagine that that came off as more than a little bit racist. They got a backlash and they took the poster down after community outrage washed over them like a tide. Their excuse was, quote, the poster was the result of a miscommunication relating to appearance rules at the school. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of, quote, miscommunication when it comes to black hair. Could this be because the people doing the communicating are not black? Plus, there's some historical baggage that comes along with the topic of black hair. 18th century Louisiana had the Tignon Law, enacted in 1786, just three years after the American colonies concluded their war for independence from Great Britain, by then Spanish governor of that territory, Esteban Rodriguez Miró. Miró thought that some black women in his territory were showing, quote, too much luxury in their bearing, and that some white women claimed that they just couldn't compete for white men's attention with all these black women going around with their awesome hair and stuff. So, the new law said all black women had to wear a scarf or other piece of cloth over their hair to signal to the community that they were, quote, of the slave class, even if they were free blacks. Also, mulattoes, which is a now out-of-fashion term for people of only partly black racial heritage, could not wear feathers or jewelry in their hair, and if they were somehow of higher status, they too had to wear a piece of cloth or handkerchief over their hair. This was done to make all black women, regardless of their actual legal and social status, to seem as if they were slaves, and to discourage interracial unions with any sort of official status, like a white man marrying a black woman. So, many black women started creating these elaborate cloth head wraps and headdresses to wear on top of their heads. Technically, they were not in violation of the law, though they were clearly undermining the spirit of it. This is why such head coverings are popular today among many African-American women. If you'll pardon the pun, you could say that these ladies turned the Tignon Law on its head. Other non-Caucasians and people in other countries have also suffered institutionalized hair discrimination. Black school children in Australia have recently gotten in trouble for having braided hair. In Canada, blacks and First Nations people were told to shape up and make their hair more like their white fellow citizens for years. In San Francisco, there was the 1876 Pigtail Ordinance, which forced any Chinese with a long braid, which is a big deal in that culture at the time, and of course takes ages to grow, who fell afoul of the law to cut their hair to within one inch of their scalp, essentially cutting the braid off. 
And remember, you could get in trouble with the law just for being Chinese. There were scores of tales of trumped-up charges being leveled at Chinese immigrants in the 19th century. This pigtail ordinance had first been proposed three years earlier, but vetoed by the governor, and then a slightly modified version became law in 1876. The good news is, is that three years after that, the law would end up getting struck down as unconstitutional. Scanning CRT. So yeah, hair. This is exactly the sort of thing that critical race theory takes a look at. What might seem like a minor issue, a tempest in a teapot to white people, actually carries a lot more weight to other groups and groupings. This applies to literally everything except the grouping that pretty much created and perpetuated the power structures that are on the surface intended to protect and bind us, but which can also sometimes restrict us, binding us in a different sense of that word. All because white guys just don't know no better. Take the issue of gender. I can think of no time in my life as a white, heteronormative, cis male in which I was walking down a city street at night and the thought occurred to me, hey, I could be raped tonight. Never. And I'm not a big guy. And yet, every single woman you know or have ever met has had that thought on multiple occasions. Just ask them and you will hear stories. And until you hear those stories and try to see things from a perspective that isn't your own, it literally won't even occur to you. But just because you don't know something, and so therefore you think it's trivial, doesn't mean it's trivial to other people. This reliance on narratives, the individualization of the results of systemic injustices and prejudices, is one of the basic tools of critical race theory. It utilizes social constructivism, which looks at shared constructed understandings about the world that inform and shape our shared assumptions of truth and reality. Meaning is actually developed working in concert with others, not in a vacuum of just a single mind. A classic example of this is money. Money has value because we all agree it has value. For us today, that's metallic disks and rectangular printed pieces of paper, and even more recently, numbers on a computer screen. In other places and other times, the medium of value transference has been cowrie shells or giant rocks with holes in them or strips of leather or strings of beads, which used to be called wampum, or even potlatch, which was a ceremony involving dances, rituals, and gift exchanging between tribal societies such as the Chinook First Nations people. It can all get a bit recursive and confusing, especially when it comes to notions such as the self. As sociologist Charles Cooley puts it in his 1902 Looking Glass Self Theory, quote, I am not who you think I am. I am not who I think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Meaning that who or what I think I am has no meaning without others to validate the concepts that I use to define myself. I'm a good man, but what does good mean in this society, in this place, at this time? Critics of CRT say that it is unscientific, that reason and evidence should be the only things that matter. CRT proponents note that most of those critics are, in fact, white, heteronormative, cis males who, directly or indirectly, benefit from the status quo, from nothing changing. CRT leans heavily on other critiques of the way things are, including feminist legal theory and post-colonial theory. A lot of what a particular person may say or think will depend in part on a wide number of different influences. So, there's not a ton of consensus when it comes to the finer details. Despite there being this wide range of approaches to critical race theory, there are some basic themes that pretty much everybody who looks into it agree are important. I will list out 10. 1. 
Critiquing liberalism, looking at the basis of key enlightenment principles like legal equality or governmental neutrality that form the foundations of our modern Western societies. These ideas and ideals were, after all, created by white guys who were not really thinking about women or black people or anyone else outgroup. Perhaps a more race-conscious approach is called for in order to actually achieve those goals. Rather than listing out a series of rights that supposedly everybody in a society has, the reality is that everyone does not, in practice, have those same rights, and so political organization and various correctives are in order. For example, affirmative action. Two. Naming your own story. As mentioned before, a heavy reliance on narratives to clarify the impact of racial injustices and inequality. I don't drive, but I'm pretty sure most of my white friends who do have never been pulled over by hostile police officers for being suspicious simply because they were in their car in a particular neighborhood. And thinking about that, which we all know happens, the infamous DWB or driving while black, we hear specific stories from specific individuals and that really brings home the reality of that experience. Three, reinterpreting civil rights laws. The idea that many, if not most, of any civil rights laws of note came about, not because there was an injustice that needed to be corrected, but they happened to align with white elite self-interest. Four, it's all connected. While CRT mainly looks at the black experience in the United States, Plenty of other groups have experienced similar societal imbalances and how the power structure supports, does not support, or actively hinders them. Having said that, the specifics of a gay, cis, third-generation Latina will obviously be quite different from those of a trans-Asian immigrant. So while everything is connected, things are also not exactly the same. 5. We know what we know. CRT acknowledges that while members of an outgroup may have something constructive to say about a group that they're not a part of, the only real experts are those of the in-group in question, meaning that African-American women are the experts on the African-American female experience. Others may contribute, but ultimately, they are the ones who know best what they have experienced firsthand. This fact makes it clear that the liberal ideal of race neutrality has not been achieved and will not be achieved until the imbalances have been systematically addressed. This is known as standpoint epistemology. 6. Out of the many or vice versa. We talk of, for example, the African-American community, but is it a single community? Do working-class black people have the same experience as middle-class ones? What about homosexuals? What about trans people in the community? Do all oppressed peoples have a common ground? If so, is it enough common ground to make any real progress? 7. Function follows form. The idea of structural determinism, which is that the structure of legal thought or culture influences its content. So, ways of treatment and behavior in society are affected by the very structures that they occur in and so influence the outcomes even on a subconscious level. For example, legal reform that gets closer and closer to color blindness is not possible in a system that is not itself, in fact, colorblind. Therefore, our current systems and structures are insufficient for true societal change. 8. I feel you, but... Empathy is not enough. Yeah, it's great when you hear stories of injustice and you feel something, maybe even sympathy. And yet, the injustices continue to occur because the system itself is part of the problem, probably the primary part of the problem. 9. Internalization. 
Racism is not just external to those who are victims of it, it is also internalized. One CRT writer mentioned not long ago that black people have been gaslighted for their entire history in America. When the culture around you keeps telling you you're inferior, unwanted, scary, violent, less intelligent, your face is unwelcome, even your hair is unwelcome, well, you start to take that in and it starts to become part of your identity, whether you like it or not. How many people do you know who, still in their 30s or 40s, talk about how they still have confidence issues because, for example, their parents treated them like dirt, or they were a chubby kid, or dad wanted a boy, or whatever? Now expand that out a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a hundred thousandfold. It's almost like a low burn version of constant post-traumatic stress syndrome, except that it isn't post because it's still ongoing. The stress is occurring, a steady drip, tap, tap, tapping on your sense of self and self-worth, like a trickle of water slowly but inexorably wearing away a stone. And 10 you go your way. There are some in the CRT sphere that think maybe the races just can't live together. Oh, not because of any inherent differences on a genetic level, but simply because racism is so deeply ingrained in white society and power structures that it is impossible to root it all out. So perhaps a totally new system is required, and since no one will ever cede privilege willingly, and no one wants to start some kind of violent revolution, Maybe separation is an answer, at least a temporary one, along with perhaps some sort of reparation scheme to help address some of the past wrongs. Keep in mind, even in the CRT world, this is a minority viewpoint. And of course, CRT says racism is institutionalized, that access to services, goods, and opportunities are just not the same for all groups, and that this has been normalized and in many places legalized. There's no bad guy to point to here. It's the whole system that perpetuates the system of injustice and equality. Yes, yes, the creators of that system and the people who are still the main recipients of its betterments are white, heteronormative, cis males. And that seems to be where the freakout is coming from. Tempest, Tempest in a, in a teacup. teacup. Despite the fact that ACRT really is just an academic field of study and discussion, a scholarly framework for thinking and research, and B, has been around for 30 plus years, recently alt-writers and those that pander to them for their own gain have discovered it and are making quite a to-do indeed about it. Oh, I mean, not just now, back in 1993, Lanny Gunier, President Clinton's pick for assistant AG for civil rights, was attacked by Republican opponents for being associated with critical race theory. They called her the quota queen, which is funny because she actually is opposed to racial quotas. They said she wanted to change electoral districts to make sure that every district had a black majority, but also confusingly that she wanted to segregate blacks and that she thought only blacks can represent blacks, that little nuggets from George Will, and many, many other goodies that were taken from simply making things up or cherry-picking things from her writings, which were extensive. Clinton sadly buckled to the pressure and withdrew her nomination. James P. Turner would be acting assistant AG until 1994, and then Deval Patrick got the position. 
And in 1995, Johnny Cochran suggested to the jury during the O.J. Simpson murder trial that even if they found O.J. guilty, they should acquit him anyway in an effort to redress past injustices against black people in America. It was pointed out by critics that this is a critical race theory idea, which it is, but it is held by very, very few people. In 2010, Arizona, often at the forefront of ill-advised, race-tinged legislative interventions in public life, passed a state law banning any public school from offering race-oriented material in their curriculum that, quote, advocates ethnic solidarity instead of the treatment of pupils as individuals. This got the Mexican-American Studies Department programs in the Tucson Unified School Districts shut down since part of that project was about having Mexican-American pride, as was Matt De La Pena's Lincoln Award-nominated YA novel Mexican White Boy, written entirely in Spanglish and was one of the several books included in the program that suddenly were verboten because the state said it promoted racial resentment through its use of critical race theory cultural critique. All this, I guess, because the mainly white politicians were worried that programs like this would inflame the 29.6% of the population who were Latino in the state to rise up against the 57.8% white majority, or at least start getting lippy about how they were being treated. Students and parents did get lippy, filing suit against the school district for violating their First and Fourth Amendment rights. The Fourth Amendment is the right of the people to be secure in their homes, houses, papers, and effects. It specifies searches and seizures and warrants, but it has been used for less tangible violations in the past. It took until 2017, but the Ninth Circuit Federal Judge Atsushi Wallace Tashima, the first U.S. Court of Appeals judge of Japanese-American heritage, ruled that their rights had in fact been violated. Apart from those incidents, and maybe a couple of others, CRT really wasn't talked about or even for the most part known outside of certain academic circles. The United States has been predominantly white since, well, since its very beginnings. The importation of slaves started around 1620. Latinos became part of the country after the U.S. waged war on Mexico and then took a whole bunch of their land in the mid-19th century. Asians started coming over in the 1860s, and so it went. By 1950, the white population of the country was 88.6%, with blacks making up around 11%. By 1990, whites were down to 80.3%. In 2000, that was 75%. And in 2020, whites made up only 61.6% of the population. Well, this trend has made some people say, because surely these non-whites are going to extract a terrible revenge for all the injustices heaped upon them in the past, right? And that imagined doomsday is approaching. It's estimated that in 2045, the white population in America will dip below 50% to 49.7% of the total population. In that year, 25% of the country will be Latino. Blacks will be around 13%, the number they've always hovered at or near. 8% of the country will be Asian, and people with a multiracial heritage will make up about 3.8% of the country. And the trend will continue as most of the people under 30 in that year will not be white. Currently, less than 50% of all children in the United States are white. For the record, Maine is the whitest state, 98% white. Texas, New Mexico, California, D.C., and Hawaii are all under 50% white right now. And Nevada is pretty close at 52.7%. 
Oh, and of course, we've seen the terrible news headlines of the uprisings, the riots, the mass slaughter of white people, bodies being dragged through the streets by inflamed non-Caucasians shouting about historical wrongs. Oh, wait, that hasn't happened. That most definitely has not happened. What are these people waiting for? Oh, oh, they're waiting for the year 2045, and then the massacres will begin. As the 2020 election loomed, some opportunists were thinking, what new scary bogeyman can I hit the Trumpanzee base with? After all, if they're scared, then they'll vote for Trump again. They tried beating the BLM drum, but most of the spokespeople for that group were pretty eloquent and the conservative talking heads really were no match for them. Plus, it really did look pretty racist. They went after Antifa, but Trump overstepped by trying to get Antifa declared a terrorist organization, but it is not, in fact, an organization, but a philosophy of being opposed to fascism, which is, you know, laudable, unless you're a fascist. Then, in September 2020, conservative activist and documentary filmmaker Christopher Rufo, son of Italian immigrants married to a Thai-American, went on conservative news clown Tucker Carlson's show and talked about how critical race theory is this cult and it's being taken over by super lefty crazies and soon they will become something like, cue the scary music, something much more insidious. His main thrust was that this thing needs to be strangled in the cradle before it pushes an ideology in which a person is either an oppressor or the oppressed. And since middle-class white heteronormative males like him are certainly not oppressed, he says then CRT claims that he must be an oppressor. This mischaracterization of CRT taps directly into conservative white heteronormative cis males' fears and resentments. And since we all know that Trump got the vast bulk of his information from Fox News, he saw and heard all this and went, yeah, unfair, I'm so not an oppressor. I might be the biggest non-oppressor in all of history. And people who like me, those beautiful, beautiful people who like me, are also totally not oppressors. And I bet they don't like being called that. I sure don't. So the Trump administration responded well to Rufo's self-serving pleas that CRT was all about how America was founded on white supremacist ideals and so the government needed to do something about it. With nothing except several Tucker Carlson TV segments in his brain about it and this guy Rufo directly speaking to Trump through the TV, which must have seemed like magic to the former president, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, called Rufo on the phone for a nice long chat and the very next day, Trump issued an executive order that prohibited any federal agency from having racial diversity training if that training included the subjects of systemic racism, white privilege, or any elements of critical race theory, as well as other anti-American ideas. Biden nixed that order on his very first day in office as president. At the state level, conservatives had found a new soundbite they could dump a whole bunch of nonsense on and started leading the charge against this anti-American divisive philosophy. Yes, a bunch of Americans waging war against a collection of ideas. Oh, the irony. She is thick. Imagine making similar bans on modernism or postmodernism or even something more loaded with social weight like feminist thought. No way that would fly. But because it's about race, somehow it seems like it's okay, which rather supports a major thread that runs through many CRT thinkers' thoughts that in the United States, a nation of mainly immigrants and their descendants and the displaced Native American peoples who were there first 
it really is all about the color of people's skin. That despite what may sometimes be good intentions, there is no colorblindness in that country. And right-wing claims that racism is over because we had a black president are just preposterous. Emboldened by his massive success, Rufo went rooting after CRT wherever he could find it. He found his escalator to fame. He misrepresented documents, made wild claims as to what they said, assuming that the people actually listening to him wouldn't bother to read those documents themselves. Like when he said that a California school curriculum that urged students to honor various gods the Aztecs used to sacrifice humans to was promoting a counter-genocide. That's the phrase he uses, and it's interesting since it kind of admits that there was a previous genocide perpetrated by white Christians. He also said the school officials in Oregon all believe that all white people are born inherently racist, which is preposterous. And he based that on a purposeful misreading of a document that urged educators to consider that just because people don't openly commit racist acts, you still might consider the possibility that racist ideas possibly have infected them. Feeling like he had something he could use, Trump gave a speech on September 17th in which he attacked critical race theory by name, and that was the first time most people had ever heard anything about it. He said he was forming something called the 1776 Commission to counter it. This advisory committee would promote, quote, patriotic education, a term that should alarm people who like freedom. Biden dissolved this committee on his very first day in office, but lots of right-wing think tanks now had a new bludgeon and a new scary soundbite to throw out to the masses. The 24-hour news cycle, the web, and social media amplified it all. In an 11-year period between January 1st, 2000 and January 1st, 2021, the term critical race theory shows up only 1,361 times in American newspapers. But between January this year and July this year, it shows up 6,000 times. Bills aplenty started cropping up in multiple states that would ban things like sectarianism, which also included critical race theory. In June, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is certainly in the running for biggest asshat of the year, pushed through a direct ban in Florida schools on teaching any element of critical race theory. Ten other states have also passed laws restricting the teaching of CRT, and another 26 states are thinking about it. The notion that simply thinking or talking about the idea that there are structural and systemic racism elements baked into the very structures of our society, that this is somehow an anti-American way to behave, would be laughable if it weren't for the many, many people who are worried about money and jobs and viruses and Project Bluebeam and shape-shifting aliens and glands-drinking pedophile Satanists and a, a whole cavalcade of things to focus their anxiety upon. Protesters have started showing up in all sorts of places holding signs like no CRT in schools and education not indoctrination. There's very often the same people who insist that the biblical creation story be taught in schools. Often these protests are in concert with Blue Lives Matter and other protests that sure seem, when viewed from the outside, to be all about maintaining the power structure as is and making no further changes. Race is what it is in America, these people seem to be saying, and any attempt to change that is just part of a grand plot to destroy the country or Christians or white people or all of them. And as I mentioned before, they'll very often say, hey, we had a black president, so doesn't that mean that racism magically evaporated like a puddle in the hot sun? To which CRT would argue, no, because the racism is structural. 
Those that wish to gain some political capital have just supplied the anxious many with a new monster to focus their feelings of impotence and frustration on. Critical race theory. Since 2012, the number of white Americans who think there's some kind of anti-white discrimination thing going on have increasingly been voting Republican, while white Americans who do not think there is an anti-white discrimination thing going on have moved away from that party. That disparity started increasing dramatically in 2016 with the election that Trump won. And so the GOP is becoming something of a mini white power party. And the members of that political party who aren't white supremacists or racists should be alarmed at this. So a few loud mouths spin nonsense and lies. Concerned citizens focus their worries on these lies and get into the white grievance mindset. And the whole political apparatus starts becoming something that is truly, to my mind at least, anti-American in and of itself. As something I recently saw, I think it was an episode of White Lotus, a great HBO show, no one willingly cedes their privilege. And yet the free market gurus out there claim America is this great engine for creating wealth, so surely there can be more people getting slices of the pie because the pie keeps getting bigger. But instead, in practice, it seems to be that those who are already feasting at the table just want bigger slices of the ever-growing pie for themselves, and the rest of us can just suck it while they try to stick it to us and keep us distracted and keep us from joining the table. I had a lot more to say on this subject, and so we're going to have to create a separate episode for the future. That one will be about identity politics, moral panic, the grievance studies hoax, wokeness, and the great replacement theory. Until then, stay strong, and for God's sake, shut up about critical race theory. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy clearing house we're closing now but we'll open another crate in the next episode until then thank you for listening <laughs>